Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. So you may or may not recognize that music. Uh, we are today on the show, on the nose, going to talk about In the Know, which is a Mike Judge, Zach Woods parody of public radio, about the third most popular host uh, on public radio. I think I am the 27th most popular host, and I, but I am here to torment America with my wet vowels. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, wet vowels. We're also going to talk... <laughs> We're also going to talk about Sarah Vowell jokes, actually, uh, and we are also going to talk a little bit later about a podcast that attempts to examine some of the taken-for-granted conventions of audio documentary podcasts and also is also very much in the public radio lane, um, and I can't ever remember the name of it. I believe it is called Shocking, Heartbreaking, Transformative. Uh, but it's certainly definitely three three adjectives. All right, let me introduce the panel. Three people who, frankly, and I don't mean to be, belittle them or demean them, if they had the courage to be lesbians, they would be Tegan and Sarah and one of the Inigo girls. But instead, they are Teresa Kramer, a freelance writer and editor and the co-founder of Quiet Corner Communications, Tracy Wu Fastenberg, development officer at Connecticut Children's, and Bill Usman, professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. Before we uh, get into all of that, um, we should uh, maybe play a little clip from In the Know. Uh, this is this will kind of set up the tone, I think, of In the Know. Uh, you're going to hear the voices of J. Cameron Smith, most recently Jerry in Succession, uh, as the voice of Barb, who's kind of the the, man, the producer manager of things. Uh, Zach Woods is the uh, voice of Lauren Caspian, uh, who is the very annoying and cloying star of the whole uh, series. And Caitlin Riley is the voice of Fabian, a super super crabby woker than thou. I guess she's a producer. I'm not exactly sure. All right, here we go. A1 cat. Great interview, Lauren. No, it's a team effort. I'm merely the big daddy. Oh, I also wanted to let everyone know that that homeless gentleman is still in the bathroom. Uh, Barb. Huh? That is hate speech. He is an unhoused person. Actually, the preferred term is person who is currently without housing. No, I don't think so. Are you sure? Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm really very empathetic to the man's situation. I volunteer at a homeless shelter. Uh, No, you volunteer at an unhoused shelter. A shelter for persons currently without housing. Well, it just feels very clunky. Oh, I'm sorry. Is it too inconvenient to treat vulnerable populations with respect? How dare you? I was using the term Inuit back in the 90s. I've been spelling women with a Y since before I could spell my name. Either way. Until he leaves, everyone on the floor will have to use the Starbucks down the street. And maybe that will teach us about the lack of water closets in this country. May I remind you all that this is public radio. Let us urinate and do all other washroom shamefuls in solidarity with our unhoused brothers and sisters. Brothers, sisters, and non-binary siblings currently without housing. God damn it! All right, so let's, uh, on that uplifting note, uh, let's get going with this. So, Teresa Kramer, maybe get us started. Um... Just your overall reaction to In the Know. 
Well, I really quite liked it. I think it's really funny. I was, you know, LOLing at the NPRness of it all while we, <laughs> while I was watching it. Um, I I think part of it it's a tough show to keep watching. However, because there's not you know, sort of a through line that's pulling you through an entire season. And I think that might be sort of a larger problem with episodic television at the moment in the current um, streaming landscape. But in general, it it had me absolutely like falling off my couch laughing. I mean, just that clip alone, washroom shamefuls. I laughed for like five minutes after he said that. Yeah, they're, they're I, I mean, I have to say also, um, <laughs> Despite being somewhat implicated by the whole show, I, th- yes. I thought it was very, very uh, funny. Uh, so, Mr. Usman, how, how about you? How is this? Give me your overall take or, or the thing you want to say about this show. Well, you know, Lauren, <laughs> uh, when I was having lunch with David Sedaris and Lynn Manuel, we talked about how I was spelling America with three K's way back in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm fairly in the same lane as Teresa is about you know the, the overall, my overall reactions to the show. Watched the first episode, really liked it, thought it was really funny, laughing very, very hard at just the, the sort of skewering of. Look, let's face it, people like us, Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, people, obviously the public radio uh, workers who I'm not one, but listeners and that whole sort of, you know, hyper liberal community. I really enjoyed the way it was really mocking that. I thought it was very funny. But then and it even started toward the end of that first episode when they got into this whole big like bathroom thing. And I was like, oh, this this episode, even though it's short, could actually have been five to ten minutes shorter. And as I watched it, I got increasingly like a little less interested and a little I, I started to find it a little tiresome. I don't think it's a good idea to binge watch it. I think it's much better, you know, if maybe you like watch an episode now and then. Yeah, I think that that makes a certain amount of sense. And, and I will say before we go to woo. That I mean, I, I like this very much. Uh, I have certain things that I relate to a, a great deal. Um, I do feel that as it goes along, it gets Mike judgier, uh, and so there are the episodes about how Lauren's voice makes people throw up. Uh, the the following episode, I think it's the next episode, which is kind of about the nature of his sperm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was thinking, you know, a little bit of the nuances going out of this, and this is really turning into Beavis and Butthead. Butthead do public radio a little bit but still very funny woo how about you so i'll preface this that i am actually not a huge mike judge fan aside from the office um and i think because the office is you know it was really big at a time where i was just about hitting the office um i actually really enjoyed it i feel very very indicted in many many ways uh but i enjoyed it i also didn't binge watch it just because of the way my schedule was. So I think that I it, it didn't pile on as much for me. Um, but I can see how if you watched all of them at once, it would probably be a bit much. Um, I thought it was witty. I thought it was sharp. I thought it um, definitely reflected uh, some of the super liberal um, groups and probably how other people see us as well. Uh, and it was it was well done. Um, but again, I agree that I'm not about to go binge watch a whole ton of it. 
Right. Just to be clear, actually, I think you're thinking of Office Space. That is the movie that Mike Judge. That one. What did I call it? The Office, which the office. which it's an yeah. understandable source of confusion because Zach Woods, who's I think Zach Woods is being identified as more of the driving force behind this, uh, somebody who's acted in a lot of things, but he had a very strong recurring role in The Office. That's probably what he's best known for, and he does. And do- I would just throw in, I find the character of Sandy on this to be very, very much like Creed. On the office, it's basically mm, the same. Uh, I mm-hmm. love. I gotta say, I love Sandy so much. I guess maybe because he's the boomer character. We should say for those who, who are not familiar yet, Sandy is kind of this boomer character, although he's unbelievably just run down and compromised, <laughs> and and also like a lot of good ensemble. There's always one ensemble ensemble person who's inhabiting a completely different reality, uh, and that's Sandy here. I mean, he's sort of the Jim Ignatowski uh, of this uh, ensemble, and I mean, he does stuff like. I don't want to give away too many jokes because I think you should get to them on your – but this is a throwaway. But at one point, literally a throwaway, he thinks he's dying of some weird disease and he's giving away his possessions and he hands something to someone and he goes, this Frisbee at one time belonged to Sirhan Sirhan. And I just thought, OK, I'm I'm home. Um, but Sirhan Sirhan joke at this point in time, if right. you can make that work, you're a genius. Yeah, or you just don't right. care. Um, so – and Teresa, so one thing we really need to talk about – so everybody, all the principal characters in this are stop motion puppets or whatever whatever mm-hmm. you want. I think that's probably um, uh, an incorrect term. Uh, puppets who who have stop motion issue. I don't know. There's there's some, a nicer yes. way to say that. Say that, but uh, <laughs> but. They interview real live people who play themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's Ken Burns and Roxanne Gay, and it's uh, it's Hugh, Hugh Laurie, and kind of amazingly, uh, well, mm-hmm. there's Tegan and Sarah, but amazingly Mike Tyson. So, and that's kind of odd. You've got the puppet who's talking mm-hmm. to a live human being on a screen. I believe the actors couldn't even see any puppets or anything like that. They were just probably just responding to voice cues. But mm-hmm. how, how well do we think that works? I think it works incredibly great, incredibly well, and I'm actually surprised by some of the people who it seems to work better for. Like, I would have mm-hmm. thought Roxanne Gay, because it feels improvised a little bit. I'm not sure how improvised it is, but I would have thought someone like Roxanne Gay would do really well there. But then, like, one of the longest sequences is with an MMA fighter whose name I don't even know. Um and it's hilarious. And he's either a much better actor than you would think an MMA fighter is, or he's a great improviser. And it's it's one of those things where it kind of switches the whole thing around on its head and he's much smarter than you think he's gonna be. And I thought it I thought it worked really, really well. Before the others comment on this, let's hear a little mm-hmm. bit of Mike Tyson being interviewed by Lauren Caspi, and this is A2 Cat. Now, Michael, when you're training for a fight, you famously listen exclusively to moody folk music. No, when I'm training, nothing but hardcore hip-hop. Hardcore, the most um, destructive hip-hop, the most vile hip-hop, that's what I listen to when I train. Right, but you must have trained to Carole King's rendition of You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. I I would never use that song, sir. What about Joni Mitchell? No, I would not use Miss Mitchell. But... Our researcher Fabian insisted that you love to shadow box while listening to Ladies of the Canyon. No, Fabian up. You know, I'm glad to hear you say that, Michael, because anytime I give any constructive criticism, she says all feedback is violence. Well, violence is a state of mind. It's perspective on violence. That's not violent to you, but it's violent to her. Hmm. Well, Michael, if you like strongly worded hip-hop, you should listen to Lin-Manuel Miranda's rap about the West Wing. It's deliciously funky. 
Wow. And have you seen his sketch on the Amy Schumer show? It's over six minutes long. Hey, I like that. That sounds good. You know, Bill, I, I do feel in response to what Teresa was saying before, I think this is mostly improvised on Tyson's part. Uh, first of all, I don't think you can get Mike Tyson to follow a script very easily. Um, <laughs> and, and I just feel like he's just kind of being real in the moment and doing a pretty good job mm-hmm. with it. The, yeah, I'm sitting as you play that clip. I I am sitting here just like really, really laughing at it. Me too. And Me too. <laughs> so much so for for so many of them. Um, I thought the interplay with Hugh Laurie, which like it's just about like that he's not doing the timing that Lauren wants him to do, and so they have to keep redoing it. And Hugh Laurie just has this very deadpan like you know bemused look on his face i laughed so hard on that and it did feel very improvised and they really did push it for a while and i i just thought that was really really funny and there are some moments throughout it that are really just kind of hilarious they you saw you heard in that clip they find a way to mention Lin-Manuel Miranda, I think, on every episode. Uh, or in one of them, Lauren's standing in the hallway and he's reading a Lin-Manuel Miranda book. And it's just those sort of touches that, you know, they really do sort of understand the NPR vibe. And so that combined with the improvisatory humor uh, those are some real highlights of it, I think. Yeah. You know, Wu, I sometimes wonder who the audience is here because – I mean, yeah. we're all laughing at it, and and you know, and I would imagine there would be some people who really hate public radio or think they hate public radio, uh, and they would be laughing at it. Uh, although in that group, like there are a lot of Malcolm Gladwell jokes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like anything more than one Malcolm Gladwell joke seems like a lot of Malcolm Gladwell jokes, and I'm think, and I w- was falling out of my seat every time. Uh, that that that's obviously sort of a running gag all the way through. But I was sort of wondering, like, who else is laughing at Malcolm Gladwell or jokes about Malcolm Gladwell? I'm not quite sure. But, yeah, well, I'm just wondering what you think of that whole sort of back and forth dynamic between the puppets and the people. I loved it. Um, I didn't know who half the people were. Um, I do have to say that I didn't recognize the Stranger Things kid, um, Mm -hmm. but glad to know who it was. I got excited with Tegan and Sarah also, just like Lauren did. And then I felt almost ashamed of myself. Um, (laughs) But it was, I think they were really well done. And I kept on thinking, like, how did they do this? How did they set it up? Because some of the things coming out of Lauren's mouth, I probably would have fallen out of the chair laughing, Mm -hmm. you know, when he was talking about his sassy hips and and the models like, oh, yeah, (laughs) me too. Yep. And I'm like, how can you not laugh at that? Um, But I think they did a nice job, especially with the collection of of folks. Um, I did tell my husband that I think that you have to understand NPR to a certain extent to really appreciate some of the humor, though. Um, and I'm and I'm not sure whether public radio non-listeners would get all the um, really great humor that's embedded in it. Yeah, one thing that I was thinking about a little bit with these uh, interviews, I mean, I thought about two things. One of them is the Muppets. Uh, and when you're one of the guests on The Muppets, I mean, a successful guest appearance by a, a famous person on The Muppets involves treating, treating The Muppets like they're real people, you know, not in any way acknowledging the weirdness of The Muppets. Uh, and, and some people are better than that than others. Um, and I also thought about Between Two Ferns, where I, I'm sure the only instruction that anybody gets when they do Between Two Ferns with Zach Galifianakis is don't break, 
and just play it pretty straight. You know, I mean, just don't don't try to make it funny. He'll make it funny. Uh, and, and it's a little bit like that. I did notice that Roxanne Gay, I thought she was terrific, but she clearly she thought this was funny. And she and she she broke over a Malcolm Gladwell joke, actually, which made me happy. Uh, one thing that I, I was I've never done this before on the nose. But I think it might be appropriate here today. Um, in just a second, I'm going to ask you if, if you have any questions for me about this. Um, but before we do that, it is actually we are in the middle of a pledge drive. Kat and I will be pledging uh, in just a few minutes. And um, later today from 4 to 7, Lily Tyson and I, senior producer Lily Tyson, and I will be interrupting all things considered uh, on the final day of pledge. With that in mind, we should tell you that episode two is all about a pledge drive. Let's hear Jay Cameron Smith as the voice of Barb. Uh, this is A3 Cat. My fellow public servants, I stand here before you with great responsibility. Some will say that what I'm asking you to do is impossible, but to them I say, and pardon my language, fooey. This is our day, our hour, our moment to grab the bull by its horns and later, of course, gently set him free. We need to raise $60,000 in six hours. I need each and every one of you to step up. Damn the man! Save in the know! It's Pledge Drive Day! <laughs> later, <laughs> later on, uh, quite a bit gets said about a Bluetooth speaker with a carabiner. I'm going to be <laughs> have a hard time doing 4 to 7 today without mentioning that at all. Uh, I don't know. Do you guys have any questions about somebody who's sitting here living inside public radio watching this? Oh, I oh. absolutely do. Okay, yes. fire away, fire away. <laughs> Uh, well, I think the biggest question is like, is there a story from the office, you know, that you think you guys could turn into an episode of the show? Oh, wow. You know, I, I, nothing <laughs> is immediately springing to mind, although in some ways, like we could turn almost every day into uh, mm-hmm. I will say this. This is not really wouldn't be worth it, worthy of an episode. But one thing that I rarely talk about here, but I did talk about it last Friday. Last Friday, it was below 50 degrees in here in the studio uh, and we later found out that the heat was totally off and the vents were just sucking cold air out of the outdoors and spraying them we thought that was just a joke about the topic of the episode (laughs) it was yeah i know i know it might have seemed that way uh today it's like so toasty warm and we're so happy but yeah i mean i think overall first of all i do think that this reflects some of the i mean there is a barb on every public radio show and i would say on this Mm -hmm. show patrick scahill was barb and then betsy kaplan was barb and now Lily Tyson is Barb. You absolutely do need that conscience, that super ego, while the rest of us all are all just kind of decompensating and being weird. I'd have to think about what we could turn specifically into an episode. It's a great question. Nothing's jumping to mind. So, Wu, it sounded like you might have something to ask, too. Oh, yeah. And, and it may be unfair to ask this, but as a fundraiser myself, I always wonder how you guys do it. Do you sit there and look at the tote bag and go, how the heck do I actually make this sound super duper exciting? Um, (laughs) And is this something that you guys jump at the chance to do? Or is it, you know, some people get let off the hook because it's really not their gig? Because even as a fundraiser, I'm not sure a live pledge would be my jam in any way, shape or form. You probably don't want me to do it. Um, I'm the filter would not be strong enough. Yeah, there are a lot of people who don't want to do live pledge. um, And there are I, you know, I've sort of gone back and forth about it over the years. Uh, I will now have a Lauren Caspian moment and drop a name. At one point, uh, Ira Glass was on this show, uh, and we were talking about Pledge, and I said, well, one thing I like about Pledge is I can really just sort of, you know, not talk about what I have to talk about on my show. I can kind of be myself and just talk about whatever I want to talk about. 
And there was a little silent silence, and then Ira went, you know, I, I listen to your show. What is it you think you're holding back on your show? <laughs> um, so, um, <laughs> so there is that. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's it, one rule that I have about pledges. I don't talk about something if I don't like it. And so we've got a really great Colin McEnroe show mug right now. And then we had an original great um, Colin McEnroe show mug. In between that, we had like a really bad mug. And it was one of those things where somebody sent me a th- uh, an email on the first day of pledge going, I just want to make sure you're comfortable with this mug. And I looked at it. I said, no, I don't like it. And they said, well, we're ordering them anyway. Uh, so uh, I only try to talk about things that I actually think are good. <laughs> so I might not be talking about the Bluetooth carabiner speaker thing. All right, Bill, you get to ask a question too. All right. So you already touched on, we all also thought of Barb as Betsy Kaplan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to know how much is McNichol like Carl and- yeah. Have you ever had a Fabian? You know, we I don't think we really have had a Fabian. So if we should say Fabian is this super angry, ultra woke, uh, I, I guess she's a producer. I don't know. She's the source of a lot of the really extreme comedy on there. And I, you know, that's that's a caricature. I mean, you know, it's a caricature that's probably based on some reality templates. But yeah, McNichol is a little bit like Carl. Particularly, there's a scene where Carl. Uh, somebody says some. Somebody disses the equipment. I can't remember who it is. And Carl steps out of his booth and goes, "This is a with a you know electronic fader." Blah, 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 blah. You know? And I thought, "Oh, that's very McNichol right there." Yeah, like he would say that. Um, so, so anyway, I think we sort of agree, right? That this is really, really fun. And you know, I mean, woo. I feel it's we. You said implicated or or indicted or something as a listener. But I think also just laughing at all this stuff, as much as we love it, but laughing at all these conventions, it feels like a pretty healthy thing to do. A hundred percent, right? I think, you know, in trying to be a certain way, we just tense up and we bottle it all up. So being able to laugh at ourselves is... um, it's pretty validating. Right. So it's called In the Know. It's on Peacock. Did I not say that already? It's on Peacock. Um, I now said it twice. Uh, we're going to take a little break. Uh, we're going to be back with this panel, but uh, very much in tune with the theme of today's show. Kat and I are about to raise some money. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth. 
We're back with freelance writer Teresa Kramer. Tracy Wu Fastenberg, development officer at Connecticut Children's. Bill Eusman, professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. You know that whole thing about how you can't yell fire in a crowded theater? That's because of Bill. Uh, Bill's the reason for that. Uh, so, uh, yes, this is our panel of the nose. We're going to talk now about a podcast. I, I have to want to shout out Meg Dalton. Meg Dalton, as far as I can tell, listens to and reads everything. She's like an important person. I don't know what her title is. She's an important person here in this company. And I just asked, is there anything that would go with this Mike Judge thing? And she immediately said, shocking, heartbreaking, transformative, a limited series podcast being released to the Radiotopia Presents feed created and hosted by Jess Shane. Uh, It's uh, about, in fact, a documentary podcast or documentary audio documentary producer, creator, who really starts asking some questions about the model that she's participating in. It has some of the very same self-loathing that you see comically depicted uh, in in the know. Uh, So let's hear a little clip from this. You're going to hear a a character uh, named Nicola, uh, and she has participated in a previous Just Shane documentary and now has some thoughts about how that went. Be one, Kat. The thing is, it should have been important to you as a documentary maker that the person you're making the documentary about feels like they're being portrayed accurately. Had I been able to hear more preliminary versions, I would have been able to help steer you on the right track. Hmm. And what, what, what do you think that would have looked like? Showing me like when you started splicing things together, like letting me listen to those sound bites so I could see where it was going. It also was a little incoherent. I hear what Nicola is saying. But on the other hand, documentarians pride themselves on seeing what our subjects don't, in finding the shared human truth inside of one person's experience. And if we were just telling the stories our subjects already believed about themselves, well, wouldn't that just be like working in advertising or doing PR? I called Nicola when I started questioning the whole industry. Partially as a result of the process that we did together, like I'm interested in taking my work in this direction that's about the complicatedness of the documentary process. And like, Can I be honest with you? Yeah. What makes you think that other people are gonna be interested in hearing that? Ah, oh my gosh. I'm sorry. I, I mean, it's about like, I feel like as a subject, I'm interested in the ethics of documentary making. Yeah, that's interesting. So Tracy Wu Fastenberg, that uh, moment where uh, Nicola says, what makes you think other people are going to be interested in this (laughs) is kind of the million dollar question about this podcast, right? Yeah, um, I I have to say that I did not enjoy this. I actually, uh, I might have texted Teresa about 10 minutes in going, I think I hate this. Mm -hmm. Um, It was... And I think that question actually goes goes to the heart of it is it is a little navel gazing, self-indulgent when the podcasts I've listened to in the past and the ones I gravitate towards are, you know, kind of almost have a different mission um, of greater community good. um, And this doesn't really have that. It's sort of like all about me and how I feel and how I'm doing stuff and how I'm helping (laughs) this person. But oh, wait, now I can't. And it just kind of it felt icky listening to it for a lot. And I feel like in that it lost some of the interest that could have been sparked about the process of documentary making, because I do think that is interesting, but it was so uh, her centric 
that it didn't really capture my attention or interest in the same way. Yeah, you know, Teresa, one of the things that you and I have bonded over over the years was the first <laughs> season of Serial, where, in <laughs> fact, she did. Sarah Kenny did a lot of that kind of stuff, and, and her producer, mm-hmm. Julie. There was a lot of, like, what are we doing here? How are we going to do this next thing? You know, what's my relationship with Adnan turning into? Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, we didn't have to hear about every bowel movement they had. Uh, and no. I, 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 to me, the problem is that this kind of metacognition is just this tidal wave that's just engulfing the entire enterprise. Yeah, I mean, I had the same thought, Colin, like the entire every serial production has really been a story about telling a story, even they just managed to actually tell the story at the same time, which Jess here does not manage to do Um, those. They've largely been about all those serial productions have largely been about how the reporter goes about reporting the story and telling it and all the interesting things that come up along the way. And then more recently, there was a series, um, podcast series called A Murder in Boston, but then also an HBO documentary series. And at the beginning of the podcast, the reporter who's from the Boston Globe says, you know, HBO pays people to participate and we do not. And so these, we want to make that very clear. And then throughout the doc, throughout the series, but then at the end, he, his name's Adrian Walker. He really wrestles with like what happens when you break, you know, this is about the Charles Stewart case from like 1989, 1990. Um, And so he's like, what happens to the people around a case like this when you bring all of this back up? Um, What happens to the city when you bring all of this back up? And he really wrestles with that successfully in a way that I don't think Jess's project does. And I think she was just kind of a little naive even going into this. Yeah, we should say, Bill, in the po- in this podcast, she's the whole idea. Is she's gonna she's gonna audition people for these stories. Uh, she's gonna find four people. Um, she's going to pay them. Uh, I think it is uh, is it twenty dollars an hour. I think it's something yeah. like that for mm-hmm. uh, for their participation, which is a, kind of against the rules of, of journalism and, and documentaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's going to give them a certain amount uh, of audio approval to post interviews. She's going to involve them more than she typically does, but. Bill, I thought, first of all, a little bit of Nathan Fielder, uh, who for comic purposes often kind of exploits that same kind of navel-gazing ga- and uh, tail-chasing. And I also thought of Janet Malcolm's famous book, The Journalist and the Murderer, where she talks about how exploitive, inherently exploitive, uh, a journalist is when trying to get inside a story or get access to somebody that that person is like a, a thief in the night trying to break in. But I'm just wondering overall about your reactions, Bill. So I guess I'll defend it a, a, just a little bit uh, because my reactions to it were not quite as negative as uh, Teresa and Tracy's. Uh, Teresa actually brought up uh, when we were all talking uh, that Janet Malcolm quote about, you know, journalism being a confidence game and, you know, betraying people and that sort of thing. Um, Shane never mentions that um, during the 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 episodes that we've heard so far there's there's still one to come that seem like an absence because it so clearly is in that tradition i do so many of you know i love meta 
you know, meta is kind of my thing. And this is very meta. And I also agree with you, Colin. It was brilliant to combine these two things on this episode. So now we've got meta on top of meta on top of meta, you know, because of NPR and podcasting and all of that. And I do think that what she's trying to do does have inherent value that, um, you know, I've I've taught a class on documentary film, on documentary films. This is about documentary audio, of course. But so the ethical issues she's struggling with are definitely something I've taught about and encouraged students to think about. How successfully she does this is a legitimate question. And I think part of the problem is her ambitions are very, very high. And I admire that. But I'm not sure she attains them and she gets a little bit too caught up in sort of like, look at me and, you know, how wonderful it is that I'm reflecting on things. It's, you know, I think she wanted to call it a heartbreaking work of staggering genius, mm -hmm. but that was already taken. Yeah. And a lot of times it's just staggering. Um, yeah. It seems to be staggering quite a bit. And, you know, yeah. Wu, there were some moments where I did think a little bit uh, about In the Know. Uh, and I, I don't know whether maybe we should give her some credit for not. She could have, upon further consideration, cut some of this stuff out. She's not afraid to make herself look bad. I think she understands in kind of a Nathan Fielder way that part of the selling point of this pro of this podcast, if it's going to sell at all, is that she doesn't mind looking bad. But I, I thought at one particular kind of in the no moment, I'm sorry to be laughing at this, but so she's got these four different people and not all of them are going to make it all the way through. But she has this point where she realizes that one of the people is this home, well, unhoused woman or whatever yeah. we're supposed to say in her 70s. Uh, and then she's thinking about this other guy, Michael, and she goes, you know, come to think of it, he, he has housing issues too. You know, maybe I don't need both of them. <laughs> and I thought, oh, you're right, but that doesn't really sound so great when you say it. But it does sound like something like Laura, that Lauren Caspian might say, Tracy Wu Fastenberg. Yes, yes, it does. Um, you know, I give her credit of giving us insight into sort of that pro thought process there. It does come off as a little cutthroat. Um, and I happened to listen to that particular podcast um, after watching uh, the very first In the Know. And so the fact that both were covering um, those experiencing homelessness or houselessness and just the, the wording that we have around it that has become so complicated and um, very long. Um, and it my very first job in nonprofits was with a uh, local nonprofit that addressed that. And I'm just thinking, you know, if I had had to write an appeal, like a, a funding appeal, it would have been three times as long just with the wording that we've built around it. And that's all I could think about with those two kind of, you know, meta on top of each other. Yeah. I mean, you know, Teresa Graber, sometimes also things can be I mean, for example, this is not the first time I've heard people talk about, well, maybe we should pay people that we interview under certain circumstances. And mm -hmm. and when you see how quickly that whole thing kind of goes south, uh, how quickly mm -hmm. that kind of moves off the rails, you think, oh, I'm glad they're doing this podcast because I can just I send people to it now. I mean, it's... I think there's also just a problem with her inherent setup here, right? Like if you're going to Craigslist and just putting out a catacall for anyone who thinks they're interesting enough to have a documentary about themselves, like you're not getting, you're not probably not going to get people who are financially stable. Uh, maybe, maybe, um, you know, 
entirely mentally well. Like there's a lot going on here. People are struggling with addiction issues. There's one guy who says he's a model, but isn't actually being paid. And so his only real money at this point is coming from the like $140 a month he's getting from these interviews with her. And she's like shocked that this hasn't solved his problems, right? Which is just like, what? How? how how does that surprise you at all that that's why the word naive just comes back to me over and over again which feels a little bit like the fabian character of in the know which is like you're so busy worrying about these like higher level issues around language or the ethics of documentaries that you aren't paying attention to people's real problems because most people will never be affected at all by the ethics of a documentary right Absolutely. Well, I th we might have to stop there. Um, you know, indulge your curiosity if you're interested in this. I, I doubt you'll make it all the way through the first three episodes, but maybe you will. It's called Shocking, Shocking Heartbreaking Transformative. It's part of the Radiotopia series. Uh, you can find it on your podcast feeds. I think we should take a break right now so we'll have some time to make some recommendations on the other side. nicer to be kind and to be called all the time to be free to call you mine and be able to see through it i'm a fraud you always knew it even if All right. The technical producer uh, of this show uh, is Kat Pastor, who is not like any of the characters in, in the know that I can think of. Uh, and the producer of this episode, the Carl of this episode, perhaps, uh, is Jonathan McVance. Uh, and thanks to both of them as well. Um, so, yeah, we are going to make some recommendations here. Teresa Kramer, why don't you get us started? Well, in the spirit of good documentary making, I want to endorse an HBO doc called Great Photo, Lovely Life. I think it's a um, sort of stellar example of what happens when a filmmaker tells their own story, their own family story. It's about um, a family where the grandfather is a known abuser, sexual abuser, and the repercussions that has had on his family throughout the years, including what happens when this young woman tries to tell the family story and brings this all back up again and you see how that impacts the family. And so it sort of wrestles with some of these questions that Jess Shane is trying to wrestle with, but while still telling a compelling story and not kind of beating you over the head with it. All right. So uh, say the title again, because now people are, are very interested. Great photo, lovely life. All right. On HBO. Excellent. Uh, and uh, Bill Usman, what about you? What are you going to recommend today? So I'm always reading one fiction book and several nonfiction books. Right now, the novel I'm reading is from 2003. It's called Old School. It's by Tobias Wolf. If you like the movie The Holdovers, this is probably something you'll be into. It's one of those books set in the past at a boy's boarding school. And Wolf is just such a great writer. You know, his prose is very simple on the surface, but he's really getting into some real complexities and, and depths in this. So that's Old School by Tobias Wolf. And then one of the nonfiction books I'm reading is called Stand Firm, Resisting the Self-Improvement Craze. Uh, the <laughs> Self-Improvement Craze. 
It's by a Danish psychologist and philosopher named Sven Brigman. Don't be put off by that description. It's really accessible. It's very funny. He calls it an anti-self-help guide. And it's sort of imbued by Stoic philosophy. But I sense a grain of uh, Zen Buddhism in it as well. So that's Stand Firm by Sven Brickman. All right. Uh, and Tracy Wu Fastenberg, what are you going to recommend? Well, with Lunar New Year coming up, um, celebrated by many countries and cultures, I wanted to share my favorite Chinese cooking uh, website because people are always like, oh, you know, can you give me a recipe? Well, I'm Googling my own recipes half the time. Um, it's Walks of Life, W-O-K-S of Life. Um, and it's run by a family. Um, and it's really lovely how they kind of explain the different ingredients. They make it really accessible. So if you don't have um, access to a great Asian grocery store, you can still make things work. Hmm. And I am also endorsing um, to bring back the handwritten note. Um, it's come back several times, come up several times in the past week. Um, I write a lot of handwritten notes for my job. I had a lovely conversation with somebody who received one of those and how much it meant to her and how, you know, getting real mail. My kids, you know, write thank you notes. Um, and then it's just it's something that's tangible. It's lovely. But when it, you just don't do it or receive them as much as we used to. And I feel like that would be a nice thing to bring back. That is nice. Walks of life, I'm very, very interested in. I do a fair amount of Asian cooking, and it's always uh, good to have a new source. Uh, that is terrific. And the handwritten notes, uh, that's great as well. So I was thinking also a little bit about some of the qualities of both of the things that we saw, and I maybe in particular in the know, one of the precursors of that, and I've endorsed it before, and I believe it's still available on HBO Max, but one of the early versions of that is The Larry Sanders Show. It was Gary Shandling's amazing uh, project about an insecure uh, narcissistic host. This time it does basically for commercial late night television what In the Know does to public radio, but it just is, um, it, it's just worth going back and watching it. Even if you watched it when it first came out, which was a long time ago, it came out at kind of the birth of, of, of premium cable. Uh, it's worth seeing it again, particularly for Rip Torn's performance as Artie, the producer. Uh, I had a producer who was Artie. I, in my first radio job, I had a producer who was exactly Artie. Uh, so anyway, the Larry Sanders show. The other thing I'm going to endorse has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, and it's the kind of thing we probably would never talk about on the nose. It's on Apple+, Plus, it's, and it has the worst title. I can't believe how bad titles are. I totally agree, by the way, with whichever one of you said that this one had a stupid title. I mean, the shocking heartbreaking, transformative. Um, I mean, these titles are really hard to remember. Uh, so this one's called Criminal Record. I'm thinking, could you not come up with anything a little bit more distinct than Criminal Record? It's a British series. Uh, it stars, uh, stars Kush Jumbo, uh, who is an actor I didn't really know. She's a major part of the Good Wife cinematic universe, of which I do not partake, although the other person in my house partakes of it eagerly and repetitively. Uh, But she is terrific. She is a wonderful, wonderful performer. She plays uh, a British cop who wants to reopen a very old case that was closed by a detective uh, played by Peter Capaldi. Peter Capaldi, of course, uh, unbelievably accomplished accomplished, uh, British actor and, of course, also part of the the Doctor Who line of succession. Um, but it's really a well-thought-out – it's, it's a procedural, but it's also gets into a lot of race and a lot of politics. Uh, and Kush Jumbo in particular uh, is examining the role of race in her private life. Uh, and it's kind of all the things that they can they can do very well in this. The, the last thing I want to tell you is that all of the recommendations you just heard, plus 
uh, pictures of our cute little panelists uh, are going to be. Well, the pictures are little. The panelists aren't. But uh, the, is in our newsletter, the newsletter. If you haven't subscribed to it, the easiest thing you could do is just email me, Colin, at ctpublic.org. And we will, I will make sure you get subscribed to the newsletter. If I sign you up today or tonight, you can get the one that's coming out tomorrow. And you will see Tracy Wu Fastenberg. And you will see Teresa Kramer. And you will see Bill Usman. And all those recommendations that they made that you forgot to write down will be there. So wouldn't that be nice? Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm about to say goodbye to this wonderful panel, but uh, Bill uh, and Teresa and Tracy, thanks for doing this today. Fun. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, Lauren. Uh, thanks, Lauren. Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and now, Cat uh, Pastor and I will. Are we going to segue seamlessly into this? How are we going to do this? This, Kat? Is, this is how we're going to do it. So right now, I'm going to say goodbye to the people listening to the podcast. So bye. <laughs> <laughs>